we've seen levels of violence and abuse fall again by between 50 and 85% when you strengthen a justice system and bring great services for survivors. Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show Gary Haugen, Chief Executive Officer and Founder of International Justice Mission, IJM. And we're going to be looking at the work they carry out across the world in protecting people living in poverty from violence. So if you're interested in the thematic topic of poverty, and you're interested in finding out how to reduce violence against those who are most vulnerable, how to ensure that laws are properly enforced to protect those who are most vulnerable, then this episode is for you. IJM is working with local stakeholders, national governments, in tackling such things as human trafficking and slavery, violence against women and children, looking at police abuse of power, and much more. So without further ado, Gary, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thanks for having me. Delightful to be with you. Well, it's an absolute pleasure. We have a little bit of a time difference. You're out there in Washington, D.C. in the East Coast, and I'm here in the U.K., but not too early for you. So No, it's a, it's a beautiful spring morning here, and uh, grateful to be chatting with you across the pond. Excellent. So you're the Chief Executive Officer of International Justice Mission. What's it all about? Yeah, IJM is trying to address the problem of violence against the poor. Uh, if you think about global poverty, at least as I was, um, you know, maybe 30 years ago, uh, it was familiar to think about problems of hunger and disease, lack of housing and economic opportunity. But the problem that IJM began to focus on was the problem of violence uh, in the life of the global poor. And in particular, everyday violence. So not the violence that tends to make the headlines like conflict violence or uh, mass atrocities, uh, but just the everyday violence of gender violence, forced labor, and tra human trafficking, sexual violence, uh, police abuse, land theft. And so IJM was started 26 years ago uh, to begin to explore solutions to the problem of violence in the life of the global poor. I've seen from your report, you have quite a big uh, global footprint these days. In other words, I've seen some work in Latin America, Africa, uh, Asia, and even Romania, and a little bit of Europe as well. Yeah, we're spread across uh, most of the, uh, the continents of the world. We have about 30 offices now uh, in different countries. Um, and we're looking at these problems of violence against the poor, but in Southeast Asia, South Asia, Latin America, Africa, especially in low-income and middle-income countries that have very significant populations of people still living in pretty harsh poverty. And as we try to address the variety of challenges they face, IJM is focused specifically on the problem of violence. So we have almost 1,500 full-time staff around the world now, but they're all, what you should picture is, is local teams of Ugandans in Uganda and Cambodians in Cambodia and Guatemalans in Guatemala. And these teams are tending to be uh, lawyers, criminal investigators, trauma social workers, um, local advocates. And they, they take on individual cases of violence against the poor 
And then over time, not only try to deliver direct services, but also then work with local leaders to begin to transform the local justice system in partnership with the government so it actually protects the local poor from violence. Because, of course, the duty, the job um, is of the local authorities to protect their community from violence. But what we've come across is that around the world, the world is kind of divided into those who live in safety from daily violence and those who live utterly exposed. And the fundamental difference is whether you have a functioning justice system that actually protects the poor by enforcing the laws and actually providing great services for the survivors. And so that's what IJM is doing around the world, working cases in these little teams, well, they're pretty good size now around the world of uh, local justice advocates who are doing direct casework, but then over time working with local authorities to strengthen the justice system so it enforces the laws well and provides great services to victims and survivors of violence. Wow. In terms of the um, the work you do, mainly service delivery, you're not, you're not a grant maker. Correct. We are on the ground operational in these two aspects. Provide direct service to individual victims of gender violence, forced labor, um, land theft, police abuse work cases with them, then try to achieve three outcomes, try to get them to a place of safety, first of all. Secondly, work with the authorities to bring the perpetrators to account. So there's actually justice and restraint of those criminals. And then thirdly, provide restoration uh, aftercare services for the survivors. So that's the direct casework. And for the first 10 years of IJM, that's all we did with just thousands of individual cases in these communities with local advocates working those cases. But over time, you start to think, wow, what can we do to actually see less of this violence in these communities? And then that connects you to the second aspect that these teams now work on, which is trying to transform and strengthen that local justice system so it does its job uh, in actually enforcing the laws effectively so you you can't just abuse people with impunity. You actually have the laws enforced. And then secondly, provide great services for survivors. Have the local authorities and communities actually provide those great services that survivors need. So that is what we found is now the most fascinating thing is these justice systems can be radically transformed to provide great law enforcement and services for survivors. And when they do, we're now measuring radical and dramatic reductions in the amount of violence because most of this violence is just crime of opportunity. People do it because the poor are vulnerable and there's no one protecting them. But when the laws are enforced and when great survivor services are provided, we're now seeing rates of violence fall as measured by outside experts by between 50 and 85% over a relatively short amount of time. Wow. Now you're talking about enforcing the the, the laws. I guess oftentimes though you got to make sure that those laws come into place in the first instance, right? That because I imagine you touched on gender-based violence, for instance, not every country is equally as enlightened, perhaps. That's a super interesting question, Alberto, because that was early part of my human rights career was focusing on making sure that countries embedded international standards for protection of uh, women and girls, for instance, or standards for the restraint of police or standards for 
fighting um, forced labor. The amazing thing, Alberto, is now almost all of these countries have really very solid laws. Overwhelmingly, if you look at it, you will see the problem is not the absence of the laws. It's that the laws are not well enforced. And this was the big revelation for us at IJM because we were seeking effective law enforcement. So at first you think, well, let's make sure the laws are there. And for the most part, because of so much hard work over several decades by the human rights and civil rights community, the laws are actually quite strong. But boy, what matters to the criminals and the abusers is whether the laws are actually enforced. And that's actually what ends up being what's important to victims of abuse too. And these communities is, are the laws actually being enforced in this community? Nice to show show me in the in the penal code, what's happening to me is actually against the law, but is anybody actually enforcing the law? And you can tell by how much fear or concern perpetrators have about getting in trouble. And in most of the communities where the vast majority of the global poor live, criminals clearly have very little fear that they're going to get in trouble for what they're doing. And so that's the problem we've been needing to address is actually the tedious plumbing of how do laws actually get enforced. And so that's what IJM has been focused on. Fascinating. Really fascinating. Now, enforcing the law, I imagine those individuals tasked with doing so, um, if they're not really as diligent as you would like, is it in part due to ignorance of the law? Is it perhaps due to social norms and perhaps thinking, well, you know, that's just the way we are. That's just the culture. Uh, um, what are the, the, the main drivers, if, if you could, in terms of the lack of enforcement for, for law? And then also just to tack on to that, perhaps people's, especially those in low income and marginalized settings, perhaps awareness of those laws, those protective mechanisms that perhaps they just don't know about. Exactly. And that's the great question to start with in an open sort of way, like, why isn't the law being enforced? Because sometimes we rush in with a presupposed um, answer. Well, it's that the laws aren't there, or it's that it's corruption, or it's um, um, la lack of uh, social support for the value uh, culturally. But this is why IJM has begun by doing casework in collaboration with the local authorities, um, because it allows you to not speculate about why is it being enforced, but actually walk through thousands of cases with real individual victims and survivors of abuse and actually the authorities who are supposed and tasked with enforcing it and see what happens as it goes through the pipeline of police to prosecutors, to courts, to social services, what actually happens? And you will find really, really different answers. Overwhelmingly, uh, the the, there's lack of enforcement because there just is not reasonable resourcing and training of local law enforcement. Um, the second, of course, is always there, there can be corruption, right? Uh, there, the authorities locally may be actually protecting the, uh, the criminality, especially if it makes money. So this is the problem with forced labor or human trafficking. These crimes make money or land theft. But other kinds of violence, like just gender violence, it's corruption in the form of like, if you've committed the crime, you then pay off the authorities for doing it. So corruption is a, is a concern. But this is why 
IJM, rather than presupposing, okay, we've had three days at the Sheraton doing some consulting with you, and now we're going to tell you why the laws aren't enforced. It actually takes a few years of working cases with the authorities and with the local community to actually come up with a diagnosis for this jurisdiction, not some jurisdiction somewhere else in the world, but this jurisdiction, this state, this city, this country, why aren't the laws being enforced? And you will come up with a pretty powerful um, diagnostic uh, that will include some of the elements that that we've named. And uh, what that then presents is, okay, here's the 16 problems with why, or, or 36 problems, why laws aren't enforced. But you know what, here's the five that if you addressed these, wow, this would radically accelerate the amount of effective law enforcement. And um, again, that's what the casework allows us to do over time is come up with a, a list of very strategic interventions that could dramatically transform the effectiveness of the local law enforcement. Mm. Now, granted, every country is different, every city is different, everywhere is a bit different, but are there any common denominators or at least out of the um, uh, that analysis that you, you prepare, are there certain culprits that keep on popping up, those top five, top three, that you sort of say, you know what, yes, there's going to be differences, but actually, I would wager that these three things are likely to be present here just because it just seems to manifest itself everywhere else we go. Yes. So almost always number one is political will. Why? Because the communities themselves are very marginalized. So the authorities are, aren't necessarily going to prioritize law enforcement in these communities that are politically marginalized because they are poor. They are sometimes socially marginalized because they're an ethnic minority or 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 another social sort of minority. So first of all, it's just political will. And then sometimes it's a lack of, there's a lack of political will because of lack of awareness. Because I think you pointed uh, to this as well. Many, uh, 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 much of the, the global poor you will now know are actually in middle income countries. Uh, so it's really a question is what is not whether or, or, or not um, sort of everybody in the country is poor and therefore you have to deal with this uh, problem that's across the entire country. There really is a segment of the country that is very poor and is not having effective law enforcement. So the question is why? And so it begins with political will. So sometimes that's a matter of building the um, awareness of the middle class and of pe people who are leaders within the country that, oh, actually, sex trafficking is a big problem in this country. We maybe didn't know about that. Or sexual violence against women and girls is happening at rates that we really are not appreciating. So that's that. That's the the first. The that you have to actually address the the social demand for for addressing the problem. So the second would then be a lack of training, simple training of law enforcement uh, to actually address the crime, because these are actually difficult crimes to enforce, even if you have political will. And most justice systems in low and middle income countries have had very minimal training on how to do just basic uh, criminal investigations. Uh, we tend to think from the economies that we come from, perhaps law enforcement is really highly trained on criminal investigation. In much of the developing world, law enforcement is trained in two things, 
crowd control and and protection of uh, elites and economic um, facilities. But how do you actually do a, a hard thing, which is a a child sex crime investigation? That's hard to do in any jurisdiction around the world. And so uh, there needs to be a significant amount of uh, training. Then thirdly, uh, resourcing uh, the capacity to just take on more casework at volume. Um, courts are clogged, prosecution workloads are overloaded. So there also needs to be a significant capacity. And then the fourth thing I would say is corruption. You will run into uh, problems of corruption and you'll need these local teams then partner with local authorities to address that. So it's political will, which has to do with awareness. It has to do with basic training. It has to do with some basic resourcing and then also uh, addressing the corruption. Those are four of the big ticket items that are present in almost any one of these contexts. Got you, got you. So that's really interesting that these sort of four culprits, as it were, seem to present themselves pretty much everywhere you go. If we look at the first one, political will, um, it's interesting because on the one hand, if I'm, I'm and just thinking at it from at arm's length, right? But on the one hand, I can see how that would be a challenge, but then also I can see how if there isn't political will, then it's unlikely that you're going to be engaged with the government, engaging with the government in the first instance, right? So somebody somewhere needs to say, uh, these guys at IJM, uh, yes, we're willing to engage with them. We need them, right? So you, you can't force a government to, to do that. They have to have that political will at some level of the hierarchy. Is it then a, a question, and my conjecture here, but is it a question of the political will lacking as you go further down the the hierarchy perhaps more at the local level that's exactly right so there's maybe a very little will in the street level the village level but if you go up the chain you will almost always find there's very earnest uh desire to do things effectively and so that's why uh ijm's casework is so important because it gives very specific examples of the problem. And then you put together a coalition of leaders within that community to then make appeals and have those engagement with meetings with really the, 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 the uh, higher chain of command about here's the, here's the problem. Here's how we are actually experiencing this. And instead of giving up and saying, oh, well, clearly the law has never been enforced here in this community. It couldn't. It's an appreciation of what you just said. No, what if we actually brought awareness in a very concrete way to the very top of the chain and presumed upon their sort of willingness to try to do better and worked in partnership with them to actually perform better, what might be possible? And we have seen just a transformative difference. So in almost every context where we have worked, we have found our local teams can go up the chain of authority and find leaders of goodwill who are quite uh, willing over a period of time, right, of building a trusted relationship to take on uh, the effort of, of, of making those, those changes. And as I say, we have now documented in nine out of nine uh, projects over the last decade reductions of between 50 and 85% of these targeted forms of violence and slavery in these communities where authorities have been made aware, 
had a partner to bring about change. And once you start to enforce the law, most of this criminality just gets out of the business and gets and and um, just won't take the risks that they are used to taking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in terms of the um, the other side of the coin, let me ask you. So you've highlighted sort of like those four cul- culprits, perhaps that are all, you know present in in many instances. Political will, one of them, training, corruption, so forth. But uh, what about the flip side? in terms of the medicine that you need to prescribe? Are there certain tools or initiatives uh, uh, or methodologies that you tend to embrace to address these culprits? Yeah, so first of all, it's pulling together the leaders in the community who actually all care about this, but, but aren't necessarily working all together, right? So who are the leaders in this mega city or in this state or even in the country who really do care about violence against women and girls. Uh, and how can we pull together our forces? Why? To address something that many times is off the agenda, which is how well does law enforcement actually address this problem in our community? You can go to lots and lots of websites of groups that are very earnestly trying to address violence against women and girls, as an example. But you'll have to search really hard to be able to find that they have effective engagement with local law enforcement and the justice system about improving the uh, enforcement of laws. Why is that? Because justice systems are also coercive systems, right? People are afraid of them. People have actually seen them be abusive. So in most of these settings, people have a very reasonable uh, suspicion and fear of what? Empowering law enforcement? That doesn't sound like a good idea. For, the, for most of these poor communities, right? But if they can get a vision of, here's what it looks like for law to be on your side. Here's what it's like for law enforcement to actually enforce the laws against the people who are powerful and abusive maybe in your community. Most in the developing world have never actually seen that phenomenon. We live in communities where, in, in, in for, for many of us, we probably will... We will see that there's a there's abuses, yes, but for the most part, we think no. I think law enforcement's going to actually protect me from violence. Uh, for most of the the global poor, they will have never seen that phenomenon. <clears throat> so the first step is pulling together the leaders to be able to say, uh, no, look, this is something actually you're entitled to, and this is something that could actually work really powerfully. Again, this is why casework is so important because it starts to produce individual stories in the community of. No, that rapist actually went to jail. No, the person running that facility with slave labor actually uh, was convicted and is now in prison for that. Once you see how the law can be used on your side, it transforms your vision of what's possible. So that's the first thing is is recovering hope and mobilizing leaders to, to ask for that change. And then you partner with the authorities on some of the, the key things like uh, I've mentioned, training. Um, great survivor services. So in most of these places, your survivors and victims of abuse won't cooperate with the justice system because there aren't really great witness protection. There isn't really great restoration. So they actually can uh, persevere through a long justice system process. So then there's it puts all your focus then on what does the survivor need? What will transform their experience of the justice system? So there's a set of interventions that are pretty well known and named now, 
for strengthening law enforcement, strengthening survivor services. And when you put those two things together, again, where governments have done that in this methodology, we've now seen in every instance, uh, violence falls by between 50 and 85% over about a four to seven year period of time. Mm, Excellent. Now, um, working in the countries that you do and the sort of context that you've described and you not being a government agency yourselves, does it ever get a little bit tricky? A little bit because you know you're taking on some vested interests that are that are not without resources and certainly not without an incentive to make sure that you you're not successful. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yes, for sure. And and tricky would be the the polite word. Um, again, the, the the first advantage though is we are using local teams of indigenous, national, local leaders who are doing this. So. They're local lawyers and investigators and and advocates. So they know about the political economy. They know about the culture. They know what the obstacles are. And so it does require a a couple of things. Uh, First of all, building a relationship of trust with those authorities. Because the the traditional model many times from the NGO and government uh, perspective is just one of, of adversaries, right? Of the the NGO is going to critique us. We're going to be embarrassed as authorities. And so we just need to act like nothing's actually wrong. We don't need to solve the problem. We need to act like there isn't one. And that's a stalemate that really doesn't go very far. So part of it is transforming the relationship of one of, yes, we need to make a, a, a critique that exposes what the weaknesses are. But then we also need to establish a relationship of mutual trust that we actually want to work on this to make it better, not just embarrass you or score points for ourselves as an NGO. So that's a difficult thing, a a bad cycle that has to be uh, escaped. And that's where, again, why the casework is so important because of the early stages, you're not doing some big structural thing that's trying to make a big splash. You're just trying to work this one case of child sexual assault, this one case of forced labor in a brick factory, this one case of police abuse. But what also then happens, as you can imagine, is you will run into the forces of goodwill within that system, and then the forces of real bad will, uh, who really are uh, corrupt and abusive. So we've had actually staff, IJM staff, beaten and abducted and and murdered um, in Kenya six years ago, because we deal with the problem of uh, police abuse in that country. Uh, One of our investigative lawyers, one of our clients and our driver were abducted by police and murdered. It took six years to get a conviction in that case, which we secured just this past um, uh, summer. But what that also did is it unleashed a level of social demand in Kenya to really seriously address uh, police violence. So that th- those murders took place in 2016, Alberto. And prior to that in Kenya, since independence, it had only had two successful cases of convicting police for murder or manslaughter. Just last year, uh, IJM and its partners and the authorities secured 40 convictions of police for murder and manslaughter. So there has been a a sea change in the uh, momentum to address the problem of police violence in Kenya, but that has been bought with a price, right? Of just, as you said, running into those elements 
within the government that initially or the, the the community that don't want to bring change. So that that is a a, a difficult navigation. But the thing that just uh, has to be appreciated is change is possible. Um, one of the things that uh, that we often reference and we write about in our book, the the locust effect, is sometimes a, a justice system in, in very poor communities will look like just totally corrupt and brutal. Uh, but we t- tend to find something called the 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 fifteen seventy fifteen rule. That is, yes, fifteen percent of it is waking up every day in the, maybe the police and justice system trying to just abuse people and hurt people. But amazingly, 15% of people inside that system are actually trying to do the right thing every single day. And in the middle is 70% of the people inside that justice system who are just trying to figure out which 15% is going to rule the day. And when people who of the 15% who are abusive and corrupt start to lose their jobs, start to go to jail, that middle will just scoot right over with the 15% that wants to do the right thing. And so that's another reason why change comes much faster than you might think, uh, because you really just need to change the balance of power, the critical momentum within that system. The, um, in terms of the, uh, the organization itself, and you, know, you operate in such a, a wide area, how do you do, get your funding? Where, what does that look like? Because it can't be uh, cheap to 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 undertake all the work that you're doing in all of these countries. Yeah, it has taken a a significant movement of resources to to back this. It, it, really interestingly, Alberto, the vast majority of it comes from individual charitable contributions. I mean, over time, we have got significant grants from the Gates Foundation or from um, you know, various uh, government uh, aid agencies. But the majority of our funding comes from individuals who care about the problem of poverty uh, and global poverty, but now have appreciated the problem of violence. And they might be giving, yes, let's stop hunger here and let's support Habitat for Humanity here on the housing um, or let's support uh, um you know, Doctors Without Borders to address urgent medical needs. But IJM can say, but what about the violence? What about when the guys with machetes show up? Or what about the the kids in the rock quarry being held as slaves who can't get to the medical center? Or the girls who can't get to that nice school that's been built because there's sexual violence that's too scary in the neighborhood for them to go to that school? How are we addressing that violence? So we've just had tens of thousands of supporters over the years begin to emerge like, yeah, let's do something about that. And now that we can show not only individual case success, but also now strong reductions in the amount of violence in these communities, uh, we've seen some really encouraging uh, support financially to be able to address it. For those listening who would like to find out more about your work, where where would you like to point them to? Yeah, it'd be great for them just to go to the website at IJM.org, IJM.org. They'll find information there or follow IJM on Facebook or um, any of the social media platforms, Instagram, so on. Great. What what I'm also interested in is is finding out a little bit more about you. you know, how did you end up where you are today? Uh, because it, it's a fascinating uh, initiative that you're driving forward here at IJM. Yeah, I think it, in many ways it began 
for me first with a more global view of what's going on in the world. And that started for me when I was in university. After I graduated, um, I went to go work in South Africa in 1985 in the midst of the apartheid crisis and had this extraordinary opportunity to connect with Archbishop Tutu and other church leaders in South Africa as they were confronting the apartheid crisis. So that brought me um, uh, sort of transformatively into the world of, wow, the the enormous issues that are taking place of, of violence and injustice around the world, and then specifically the, the problem of violence and the way government violence especially was uh, just crushing the, the hope of those who are poorest. Then over time, I became a lawyer with the U.S. Department of Justice in Washington, D.C., so focused there mostly on police abuse in the United States. So this was back in the 90s, uh, the Rodney King uh, beatings and riots took place um, because of this perennial struggle in the United States to uh, address uh, uh, the, the the problem of the proper uh, police use of force. And speaking of Rodney King, you, you are from California. Correct, yeah. Mm. Um, and originally from California. And so, it, which also is to say, Yes, IJM is involved with struggles with uh, justice systems all around the world, but every country is going to have these, these struggles and difficulties. And that's where I began was here in the United States. But in 1994, I was sent uh, to be the director of the UN's genocide investigation in Rwanda. And that was also a very moving experience because you could see there in Rwanda, there had been all kinds of anti-poverty programs for decades but it was completely decimated by the phenomenon of genocidal violence. So again, that's what crystallized in my mind. Wow, as we're trying to walk alongside the, the global poor, we got to make sure that we're uh, focused on and addressing the problem of violence. And it really was from, out of that that I began to envision um, an organization that might try to address that. And that's how IJM was born. Fascinating. If there's a, uh, I think if there's ever a useful set of tools and experiences to to take on the the role that you have now i think you you, you probably have those under your belt yeah i they, these have been very formative uh for me um but i think what's been most helpful over the last 20 now six years at ijm is walking alongside the individual survivors of violence in very very poor communities because if you're going to build a justice system in a community that that protects you got to make sure it's working for those who are poorest and most vulnerable. And how do they actually experience their justice system? And that's why working casework, tens of thousands of individual cases, and listening to survivors and victims of abuse, that's where we've learned the most critical things. And now IJM has, has catalyzed something it's called the Global Survivor Network, which is emerging as one of the largest networks in the world of survivors of violence and abuse. And these are now leaders who are speaking into, well, how do we address the problem of violence? How do we address the problem of justice system transformation? Um, and we're continuing to find that the most powerful things, the most indispensable things uh, are learned from staying very close to the survivors um, of violence and abuse themselves. Yeah, yeah. A key takeaway 
Is there one thing you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's show? I think always for me, the, the big takeaway is hope, right? That things can change and get better. Um, and I think there's few things that people feel more hopeless about sometimes than violence, than the way that scary people with power and violence hurt others, whether it's children and women, uh, whether it's people who are very poor in, in places of human trafficking. And what we would want them to take away is that over this la last decade, we've seen levels of violence and abuse fall again by between 50 and 85% when you strengthen a justice system and bring great services for survivors. So let's let's please recover hope over what's possible. These aren't easy things. And um, if folks are, are, are wanting to engage more and hear more, please, please walk with us uh, in this. We've written this book, The Locust Effect, which sort of allows uh, folks to go deep into it or visit the website, but, but recover hope that the violence can actually stop. I love it. I love it. Optimism and, and, and keeping hope alive. Gary, thank you so very much for joining me and joining us on the Do One Better podcast today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Really interesting conversation. As we were saying before we, we clicked the record button, you know, we, we you and I were both privileged to learn so much from, from others just by exchanging notes and having these sort of conversations. And it's really great that we have the opportunity to have you here. And um, it's been a learning experience for me and hopefully for those listening as well. Thanks, Alberto. It's been a real privilege. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Gary Haugen, Chief Executive Officer and Founder of International Justice Mission, IJM. For information about this conversation and more than 200 other case studies and interviews with remarkable leaders in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button and do leave us a rating and a review if you haven't done so already. It helps others to find the show as well. Thanks so much for tuning in and I will catch you this coming Monday.